We're back here to the Neil Haley show on the total celebrity segment. I'm excited to welcome the program Fl- director Florian Zeller of the father. How are you, Florian? I'm fine. Thank you. What about you? I'm doing great. Let's kind of just jump into this. I screened this movie and I just was just absolutely blown away. Tell me how this project started for you. Cause I mean, in a lot of ways, I don't want to give away things in this film. I w- cause it, it surprised the heck out of me at the end. So I just really want to talk about how you directed this to make this vision come alive in so many ways. Cause it's so brilliant. Thank you. Thank you so much. Nina. The thing is that the father was first to play. I'm, I'm French, as you can hear. And it was first uh, a French play and uh, called The Father. And it was about a man losing his bearings. And at the very beginning, I used my personal story, probably. But I knew that so many people, you know, everyone has a father. And everyone right. has, could be related to this fear or to this, you know, dilemma when you have to correct you know, to, to help someone who is losing his bearing. So it was about sharing emotions. And what the, when the play was on stage, I realized that there was something cathartic about precisely sharing those emotions. You know, people were waiting for us after every performance to tell their own story. And this is when I really decided to, to make a film based on that play. I mean, that's, so that's really interesting. So you decided to make that film and not always a director takes that role, right? That's different, isn't it? Yes, but I had this conviction and this uh, desire to do this, to share this with people. And and, uh, because, you know, I think that art is done for that, to make you feel or to make you remember that you are part of something larger than yourself. And I wanted to share those emotions. But when I started to write the script, I had uh, Anthony Hopkins uh, in mind, you know. Oh, it was wow. like a, an obsession because I, I had this conviction that he would be extraordinary in, in this part. So I tried to, to, wrote, to, to write the script. Um, I, I was aware that it was not an easy dream to fulfill. But, you know, until someone comes and proves you that it is not possible, it means that potentially yeah. it is. So I just wrote it and, uh, and sent the script to Anthony. And one day I received a call from his agent letting me know that he wanted to, to meet with me. And I took a plane to Los Angeles to, to have breakfast with him. And oh, wow. this is how it started. It, because the vision's so amazing. And as I said, I don't want to ever give anything away from this situation. But why Anthony Hopkins? Why was he so perfect? Why did you envision him to play this role? For many reasons. The first one is because he's my favorite actor. And I think he's he's the greatest living actor. But also because, you know, we know him through all his role as this man, very intelligent, always in control of the situation. And I thought that it would be a disturbing process and an interesting process to see that man precisely losing the control because it's about someone who is powerful and losing everything, including his power and and his bearings on reality. And so I thought that it would be you know, this experience, you know, as I have the feeling that he has always been around, you know, on screen since exactly. I'm a child, you know, we, we feel he is familiar to all of us. And I thought that to see that man becoming step-by-step step someone else. Oh, yes. Yeah, would connect us to this very personal and intimate experience when you are with someone you do love, someone you do know, and to see right. this person becoming Just someone change. else. Yeah, yeah, become someone exactly. else. And then exactly. it kind of looked, it reminds you, and I think you're a fan of Silence of the Lambs and how Anthony was able to take that character in the film in so many different 
ways where he was acting so different. And the father takes us through that journey of the father as just any grandfather you would know, right? Or dad that was going through, you know, getting old to the point where we saw him progress to this just fever pitch so quickly of where he became, where he, where he became, right? Yes, and also, you know, what I wanted, what matters to me is to, in a way, to put the audience in a unique position as if you were going through a labyrinth. Yes, oh my gosh. Because I didn't want the father to be just a story. I wanted the father to be like an experience of of what it could mean to lose your own bearing. Also, as a viewer, it's in a a way to, to experience this journey from the inside, you know, I didn't want to tell it from the outside in order to have more compassion for this painful process and to try to understand it from the inside, you know? And you get surprised so much, which I don't want to give away, but in the play, the same thing, people were surprised based on it, the the French play. Yeah, but what I didn't want to do is just to film a play. I think that's not interesting enough. What I wanted to do is to make a film and to do what the cinema can do, what only the cinema can do. And I wanted that experience to be immersive. And thanks to the cinema, thanks to the language of cinema, you can create like a very immersive experience of losing everything, including, you know, the awareness of your own identity. This is what I wanted to try to, to make people experience through that film. But it's so not, pr- yeah, and it, I think you're proud of it. You're proud of the final product, aren't you, Florian? I'm very grateful because this is exactly the film I wanted to make. And I had the possibility to do it thanks to many people, but thanks to Anthony Hopkins and thanks to Olivia Coleman because they really left me the opportunity and the room to do what I have in my vision. They were so generous to me and so humble in a way. They were not here to serve themselves, but to serve something larger, the story yeah, and the true. emotions I wanted to explore. So were you a director before? This is the first time as a director, so this is really different, right? Yeah, it's, the, fir- no, it's yeah. the first time as a director, for a movie director, filmmaker. But I, I come from theater, so it was the continuation of something I knew, but it was also going into the unknown. And I really appreciate that, you know, to to jump into the unknown and to to follow your instinct and your desire. Filmmakers usually aren't the directors. That's why I kept bringing up the whole thing. You have to see the vision yourself that you vision something. You had to create the vision, find the cast, all that. That's a pretty challenging thing. Yes, but it's also a very exciting thing. And in the end, it was the most joyful and intense experience of my life. How did Anthony feel after it was finally done and got to see it? I mean, he was so generous during the journey, the the filming, even though sometimes it was almost painful because, you know, I wanted that experience to be as truthful as possible. And for him, the challenge was not to do what he's known for, but to do something else, to explore a very emotional territory, you know, to go to this very fragile and vulnerable place. So it was in a way, for him to accept, to be connected to his own fears and to his own feeling of mortality, in a way. So it it was like an extraordinary but also painful process together. And then when it was finished, I think he was really um, grateful, as as I am grateful to him. 
The other thing, Florian, that blows me away of this whole film is the fact that you want more after it ends. Was that a plan of yours? You wanted Sorry. to know more? You wanted to know more of what happened after it ended. Like, darn it, I'd like to know more what's next, what happens. Yeah, next. but you know, the silence after a film yes. is still part of the film. It's powerful, for sure. So it's awesome again. I was saying what was awesome is, again, it's in theaters today. Again, so it comes out on the 25th of uh, February, or 26th, right? Today's Feb yeah, February 26th. It's available everywhere. Where's it available for that day? We start in, in, in New York and, and San Francisco and Los Angeles, and then uh, everywhere in the country. I mean, not everywhere, but where it is possible, uh, you know, step by step. It's true that it's it's a it's a it's a strange year to have a film to be released, but I profoundly believe that we all need to share those experiences together. What I really love about going into a real theater is that you know you are you share a room and you share a space and a time with people you do not know that like strangers to you, but then you experience emotions together and you realize that they are not strangers anymore. And art is here to make you remember that strangers means nothing. All right. So best place we can find information on the film. Where can we go, Florian? Yeah. Where, where can we find information on the film and stuff, Florian? Where's the best place to find it? I think on the internet, you know, and, uh, yeah, and find it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> That's okay. No, but I appreciate you stopping by Florian. Brilliant job excellent i know we're going to hear so much more about this film later on but i appreciate you coming by for sure to the neil haley show thank you neil thank you so all much right. all right thanks okay you're listening and watching to the neil haley show and we'll be back in just a moment neil haley here lensec has been a sponsor of the neil haley show and total media network for around a year and a half and i wanted to tell you a little bit about lensec Lensec has been a pioneer in IP security video since 1998. The company is a trusted security partner with experience around the world. Lensec has experience working with customers in higher education, K-12 education, government, public safety, critical infrastructure, healthcare, commercial, and more. The physical security experts at Lensec help customers develop enterprise solutions for their complex physical security projects using our flagship software, Perspective VMS. Lensec's enterprise-level video management software, Perspective VMS, is a browser-based software that streams and captures IP security camera video. The latest version of PVMS uses HTML5 interactive features in a thin client application that is designed to provide real-time situational awareness. Access control and other advanced features are integrated into a unified security platform, creating an ability to track behavior and movement while monitoring the live or recorded video. For more information, please visit lensec.com. And now back to the show. Another edition here of Reinvention Radio. Hanging out live here on Clubhouse with the family at Club Pod. And specifically my brother from another mother, Neil Haley. What is going on, my friend? Good I, having you I, here. I love it. I love it. I wanted you to be part of this. And the idea of bringing interesting, very interesting celebrities 
to co-host with me and Jack, yeah. uh, our guest, the first one. Wow. And again, I look at it like the days of the boy band and, and, and I hope that our guest does not get upset when you bring out boy band, but we have an amazing guest uh, lined up today that's on stage yeah. with us. Yeah. And I mean, look, let's, let's jump straight into it without further ado. No reason to, to wait here. Jeff Timmons is hanging out with us, and uh, and Jeff, man, it's really, really great having you here. And uh, and I got to tell you, man, I, um, I I know there were a lot of ladies who were uh, who were really excited about having you here as well. Do you still do you still get cat calls when you walk down the street? <laughs> well, you know, look, I I don't know if I'd call them cat calls or <laughs> something else, but you know, <laughs> it is nice to be uh, uh, still kicking it around this many years later, guys. Thanks so much for having me, and. And congrats on your success. And it, it's a uh, it's a it's a real honor to be you know uh, a part of the show and in this forum as well. I mean, this is a new forum for me, of course, with all the emerging different platforms and technology out there. Uh, you know, you, you jump from one to the other, and this, this clubhouse forum seems to be really interesting and cool. So thanks again. Yeah, man. So give us uh, give us a sense of where you're at in the world right now. Are you like literally physically? Are you still in LA in that in that area, or where are you at physically? Uh, you know, look, I've lived in Las Vegas, uh, outside of Las Vegas, about 20 minutes outside of the Strip for 10 years. I I love it here. I mean, I've lived in New York. I'm from Ohio, right. uh, in the Midwest, and and lived in New York, lived in LA for many years, in Southern Cal for many years, moved to Vegas, and and I just I absolutely love it here. You know, I, I spend a lot of time in LA. Not as much now, obviously, because of of the pandemic. But yeah. was spending a lot of time in LA, pretty much flying in every week. It, but you know, I I don't mind doing that at all. I really enjoy the city of Las Vegas, the people here, and it's it's so much different uh, than people think. You know, they they think of the you know Vegas and the bright lights and the Strip, but there's a lot more that goes along with uh, the culture in Las Vegas. You know what, Jeff? When I think about Vegas in different ways, is Again, all the great performers. Do you like that being in that atmosphere? That you can hang out with a lot of people that you hung out with when you were touring in your career. Yeah, you know, I love it. And Neil, when I first got here, it wasn't like that at all. You know, Vegas used to have that rep reputation that this is where you go when you, you know, your career's over. You know, when you're on your last legs. And I got, I came here, and I, and I was, you know, part of, you know, I hosted the Chippendales, and I was reluctant to do that because I thought, wow, people are going to think, you know, I'm, I'm a stripper now, and but you know, I came and saw the show. It was a it was a well put together show. It's a Vegas show. It's a production, and I was asked to host it. My wife was like, "You should do it. It's going to be really fun, and it gives us something to do." I, you know, I I had a pretty steady gig doing music out of my house and doing some other stuff, you know, for television placements and, and things of that nature. But and had been out of the spotlight for for a while. And she said, "Go do it. It'll be fun." And I hosted the show. I did not dance <laughs> in the show. Uh, I wouldn't dream of it after seeing what these guys look like, right? Compared to the way I I, I look, but. Um, you know, infused some pop music into it, fell in love with Vegas. And what I did notice was, you know, they treat you like a king here when you're an artist or a celebrity. The audience was not an, you know, an old, really older audience. It was a contemporary young audience. Um, and, you know, it, it's such a just a beautiful atmosphere. And I thought, man, you know, look, I had toured for so many years. Uh, you know, there's something about Vegas that's really endearing. It's kind of like a small town, uh, a lot, lot, lot of culture with regards to the food and you know, I was like, wow, I, I, people got to know about this because when my colleagues and my peers find out about this, they're going to come here and they're going to want to stay because the tour essentially comes to you. You don't have to go on tour. And I wrote an article. Uh, Robin Leach was a, a dear friend of mine. He's since passed. And uh, he was really great to me when I got here. And he, I wrote a guest column. And I, I think it was either the Re Review Journal or The Sun where he worked that that was just, you know, 
raving about Las Vegas. And, and, and when people find out what a cool place it is and that you could, you don't have to travel and you can make money and you can, you know, have a good nightlife, but you can also have a family and live in a nice place in a suburb outside. It's going to be over. And sure enough, you know, then came Brittany and Backstreet and JLo and Ricky Martin and, and Gwen and Christina. And so it, it's now become, you know, sort of in vogue to, to have a Vegas, uh, a residency and be a part of it here. So I, I've been lucky and fortunate enough to have been been a part of that. Yeah. It's a really interesting story too, man, because, you know, when you think about it coming from where you came from and then making it to the height of your profession, and, you know, people can argue all day long about, you know, 98 Degrees was this or it was that, but one of the things that 98 Degrees was, for sure, without question, was noticed and was seen and was heard. And so there are so many musical artists out there who never, ever, ever, ever get heard. And so I, I, what I'd love for you to do is shed some light on, on what that journey was like. Because how does, how does a kid, you know, coming from where you came from, get to the point of, of literally being center stage, top hit, I mean, running with this. I mean, like you guys were at the top of the game and so many people will never get to that point. So I just really want to try to understand a little bit more about the journey and shed some light for, for others on, on what that looked like. And man, there's got to be some stories. Oh, yeah. I, there's never a shortage of stories. <laughs> some you can tell, some you can't. <laughs> um, but but uh, look, it, you know, we had a, a sort of a, uh, a very interesting journey. I started the group with I'm from a very small town in Ohio, and it was primary, primarily a sports town, football town. It's known for that. And, uh, you know, I was involved in the arts. Arts always came easy to me, but I wanted to be a football player. <laughs> and it just wasn't in the cards for obvious reasons. But, uh, you know, singing and music always came naturally to me, but it was not cool where I was from, you know. So, uh, just oddly at a party, some girls wanted us to sing and it, and I was with some old friends in college and, uh, you know, I parted out a, a four part harmony version of My Girl, uh, which is an old Temptation song, of course. And we did an acapella version of it. And, and whether it was good or not, I don't know to this day, but I thought it was at the time because of the reaction we got. And but to me, I thought, you know, having a background in music, uh, I thought it sounded really surprisingly good for guys that weren't supposed to be singers. And I just started the group that way, migrated to LA because none of this existed. There was no YouTube, there was no Instagram, Facebook. Uh, you know, you couldn't do things on social media to get discovered. You had to literally physically pick up and go to the places, uh, you know, where you could try to make a dent and, and you know, uh, try to live your dream. And those places for music were New York and primarily LA. Went just, to LA. Just Hold on. So Jeff, just so I'm clear, you went out. You went out solo, or did you guys go out? I mean, as the as the group that we know it to be now. Well, no, it wasn't the same group of guys. It was it was some guys I went to college with at the time, um, and we called ourselves something else. We were called Just Us. Uh, we had a couple of different names, but we we drove to L.A. cross country, and uh, my we we lived in L.A. for a little bit, and used to sing and drop the hat and sing a cappella and try to get attention and get noticed, and we were really getting noticed by a lot of notables in the industry. <laughs> you know, we would we would sing outside of clubs. We sang to get into The Tonight Show uh, with Jay Leno was the host at the time. And, um, you know, sang to get on Disney's lot uh, to get discovered, uh, sang on So Third just, just so we're clear here, just so we're clear, you're saying you and the fellas literally just stood outside of wherever the places were that you were trying to get into. And like you said, just kind of put out the hat 
and started singing. That's how that's how committed you guys wow. were to the process. That's right. Yeah. That's right. We that's what we did, and and we literally did drop the hat. We dropped the hat and tried to make money. Now we whatever we would make, we would spend on beer, of course, because we had no <laughs> responsibilities. <laughs> and we, you know, we had this uh, we had this tree in our apartment. We called it the money tree, and you know, we were going to put all the money we made uh, from dropping the hat on this tree. Uh, that lasted. We put one hundred dollar bill up there, and that was gone the next day. And, and, and we, it was it was tons of Miller Lite and and all that stuff. But yeah, wow. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, anyway, we uh, we got discovered doing that. We we were singing acapella. The guys I was originally with with it wasn't for them. Uh, they kind of wanted to go back and be part of the uh, you know the small town sort of uh, environment that we grew up in, which I totally respect. But I didn't want to give up on it, so I started auditioning folks in L.A. Uh, I could not find anybody, which in the in the area that's supposed to be the mecca of talent, <laughs> I, I couldn't find anybody that was either committed enough or, you know, had the right attitude or right work ethic or desire or vision. So it was really hard. It wasn't until I was introduced to another guy from Ohio that was in L.A. as an actor that knew Nick uh, and he literally gave me a tape, you know a tape, you know, audio tape. I don't know if folks know what Are that is. Are we talking is, like a cassette tape? A cassette tape. Cassette yeah. tape, got it, yeah, yeah, got it. A lot of folks don't know what that is anymore, but I, uh, Nick was singing with a, a blues band, a club band, and Justin from our group was in the band with him. Uh, they played horns and did covers, and uh, I, I popped the tape in my cassette player and listened to it, and I fell in love with Nick's voice. I thought he was amazing. I had no idea what he looked like. Uh, there wasn't any place I couldn't go to his Facebook page or oh, wow. Google yeah. him. <laughs> I just had to go with, well, I, ho- I hope the guy's good looking. I love his voice. So I called him up and talked to him and convinced him that he should be a part of this. He drove uh, across country and joined me. And that was the first time I saw him is when he, I met him in L.A. Uh, you know, eventually he brought his brother and Justin out. And that's how we started the group. And, and again, singing a cappella and trying to be resourceful and keeping that hustle going. We sang backstage at a boys to men concert. Boys to men were our idols. We wanted to be signed to Motown like them. We wanted to get signed like them, uh, like they did. And so we, we snuck our way backstage and sang and we got discovered there and eventually got signed to Motown and eventually toured with boys to men. So it was really like a dream coming into fruition and in a lot ways better than I had imagined it. I've been very, very blessed and fortunate. Now, Jeff, did you think in your own mind, did you think when you, you, you got Nick and and all this that that was going to become this big. Did you, like you said, you were kind of just trying to make it to, as a singer, and then bam, you you are the one that discovered. You were the discovery person. Did you believe that at that time you had something special and that was going to be big? Well, I you know look, I, I I had a feeling the very first time the first guys sang it was going to be big. And again, I, I when we like I was saying in the beginning, I don't know if it really was, was good or where I was just kind of, you know, that sort of ignorance is bliss sort of thing. But there was something special that I felt about it the very first time I did it with, did the, did a, did an acapella performance with the, the other guys. And uh, just the way it resonated, just the way people reacted was different than other, you know, little groups or doo-wop bands or, you know, four-part choir groups or anything that I'd been a part of before. And I was like, wow, there could be something really here. And Boys to Men was popular at the time. I used to, you know, I would listen to the radio in my hometown in Ohio in the basement and I heard boys to men for the first time on the radio and I didn't know what that was. And this is back in the day that, you know, you had to wait for it to come on again or call yep, and request yep, it. And yeah, wait for I remember hours. that. I, so I heard it's so hard to say goodbye on the radio in my basement one o'clock in the morning and literally called the radio station all night wanting them to play that again, you know? 
And so uh, for us to go backstage and sing for them and or sing, you know, at their concert in LA, you know, a year later, and then, you know, 15 years later touring with them, uh, I wouldn't have imagined it. To answer your question, I, I felt like it would be, I had a feeling that it would be good and big. And again, uh, certainly the guys in 98 Degrees, a different level of talent. You know, once once we got, you know, those guys together, it was really special. And uh, and I thought it would be big and I hoped it would be and I dreamed it would be. And it did get big. But some of the things you could, were you would never imagine. I would never imagine, you know, flying all over the world and standing in front of Michael Jackson and performing for him and getting to perform with Mariah Carey and Steve, and the list goes on of just just wonderful things, you know, impacting people and them telling us their song changed their lives and and getting to go all over the world. And I, I just, I didn't, I had never experienced that. So I didn't know what to expect with something like that. Yeah. So some of the stuff was uh, much larger and more profound than I had ever envisioned it being. Yeah. Take, and take us through the money, man. How, how does it work in the industry? So you show up, you start singing, you start getting some interest, you sneak backstage, boys to men likes you. They go, yeah, let me, let me connect you with this. I assume they connected you with their people, their people at that point. Well, boys to men weren't even the people that we connected with. Someone snatched us up before we could get to boys to men. There was there was a there was a singer named Montel Jordan who who sang a song called "This Is How We Do It." Yeah, he was sure. very popular back then. His road oh, manager yeah. kind of stopped us from going and connecting with boys to men backstage. He kind of he kind of uh, you know took us aside and said he wanted to 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 manage us and you know look we were so excited just to be backstage right we were uh, someone wants to manage us we took his card and then he was our first uh, experience in the management area. So, so what did that deal look like? Like, I'm just curious how that works. I'm sure it's a little bit different now, but, but then how, how did that work? Like, what did that first deal look like for you? Because obviously your first deal is probably always going to be your worst deal, which is why you probably want to sign a long-term deal. But what, what, like, can you give us any insight, like what a first well, deal all, looked all like for you at that point? Aren't, aren't very favorable then. And they aren't very favorable <laughs> yeah. now either. Now you have a, more opportunities at your disposal. So if you're a lot more savvy and you can become educated in the business a lot easier now because there are more tools at your disposal. Uh, there's more out there to be discovered. There are more people talking about it overtly uh, than when we could do it. But, you know, the the deal, the record deals are favorable to the labels. I mean, I'll just leave it at that. I mean, we we had enough success that we were able to make a good living and still are able to live off that. But certainly, there were other people that made lots and lots more of <laughs> yeah. the of the pie than we did. So, did you have guidance, Jeff, when this happened? When you got when you got no, we did we did And traditionally, you don't as a new artist, and especially if you're not with, you know, someone that's a veteran in the business. Our our first time manager, he was a road manager that became a regular manager, so he wasn't really educated and. And well versed in the in the way deals were done, he said he was, but he wasn't. But and then you know, look, when we were getting all that attention, he was getting a lot of attention. So you know, rather than rock the boat, you know, he was going to go along for the ride uh, anyway, and 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 collect information and contacts, and you know, sort of look out, uh, you know, for his best interests as well. And certainly, you can understand why somebody would do that if they weren't familiar with how the business works. But no, there wasn't anybody. You you know, it was it was education by you know by by experience and. You know, now, many years later, I'm able to use all of those experiences to help me tailor my career in businesses and, and other things. So, you know, at the time, it's very painful. <laughs> but, you know, many years later, I'm thankful for the experience and grateful to have had that unique experience 
that I'm, I've been able to learn and become more educated and more sort of in tune with what goes on uh, in, in the area of the business side of it, because it is the entertainment business, the, the music business. So uh, it's important to know and learn and under, get an understanding of those things. Yeah. So did you take, and in, in, in just trying to figure out like the, the best way to word this without being, you know, like, let me just say it. So did you take those early experiences then and were you able to leverage those into something more beneficial for me, for you for, from a career standpoint moving forward? Or did you kind of sign away too much at that point? So you, you it's kind of hard to dig yourself out of that hole. Well, look, fortunately for us, we were so popular that we generated enough money that we were, we all, we're all set. We're good. Even if the deals okay. were bad, if that's yeah. what you're asking. Yes. Yeah. We, we didn't, yeah. we, none of us were in the poor house. Uh, Steve, I, we, we were able, we were able to be blessed and fortunate enough to have made so much, uh, generated so much, uh, you know, gross income for everybody involved that even our small sliver of the pie is good enough for us to live on. And as far as experiences, you know, you take that and you parlay those experiences into be becoming a better businessman. And mm-hmm. and you can all, you know, there there is, uh, you know, there is something to be said for being a good businessman and being fair. You don't have to be a cutthroat businessman. You don't have to, you know, screw people out of deals. You can give everybody their due, what they deserve, and there's still enough left to go around. You know, so so many of the people I've encountered in the business want to take all of it, right? And and don't, you know, there it's almost like a it, you know, a, a sort of a, a game within a game, right? That they have wow, to have all yeah. of it and you get none of it. But, you know, there are ways to have success and uh, appreciate the, the business side of things and give people what they're due. There's plenty to go around if you do it the right way. Yeah. So ah, I got to ask this, man. I mean, you're a good looking guy. You're still a good looking guy. You were a good looking guy then. You're still a good looking guy now. There must have been, how hard was it? I mean, to be honest, right, with everything that was going on there for you, I mean, you must have just people, girls, just throwing themselves left, right, and center at you. Like, how crazy did it get? What's the craziest did it get as far as all that goes? It got probably crazier than you can imagine. So if, sure. if your craziest entourage episode, it's probably their crazier story. No, 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 yeah. man. You can't. You, could, you couldn't have lived the entourage life, really. Give us one story then. Uh, oh, come uh, on, yeah. man. Come on, yeah. Yeah, you know, you, you well, look, like I said, if you've seen Entourage, you've seen it is a crazy experience. So, you know, obviously, when you start, when you're a young guy in college, you start a group like this, you, you do it for superficial reasons. You want to be famous, you want to be rich, and you want to meet girls. And so, as young guys, those were kind of our thing. But once you get into the business side of things, and you're really, you know, it's a job, right? You have to work every day, you've got to get out there and grind. You, you don't have any time to really sleep. And you, you know, it's a very competitive business, especially if you're comps and people that, they're comparing you to are like the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC that are having extraordinary amounts of success. So you want to focus and, and try your hardest and cultivate your career. And so while that stuff was great in the beginning, exciting and fun, you know, at the end of the day, you still have to get up and go to the go to work, right? You have to be fresh and be ready to go and you got to perform and you have to do interviews and you have to travel and you have to make sure you're treating everybody with respect and you're taking care of people and you're reading contracts and it, it goes on and on and on. Right. And again, blessed to have, have that opportunity to be that busy. But you also want to be a professional. Right. You want to make sure you're doing it. So while that stuff is cool and excited, exciting and it's, you know, it's at your disposal after about the first three months of it, 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 it wasn't that exciting anymore. You're like, OK, this is great. None of it's real. It's so crazy and, and so hyperbolic that you start to go, all right, what is real? You know, I have to find out what's real. And really, you just have to you have to look internally. You have to take a deep breath 
that you have to meditate on everything and take some time to get quiet and, and really evaluate what's real and what's not. It's what's important, what's not. So, you know, that stuff's fun. And again, it can, you know, use your imagination as crazy as you want it to be. I, I promise you I have a crazier story. Uh, oh, and, 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 and it is a, it is a, an extraordinary lifestyle and you can easily buy into it and live it. And it's a very self-destructive lifestyle as well. Or you can say, oh, cool. I got to experience this. I did see this. This was pretty crazy. And then you go, all right, let's get back to work. How can we get better as a group? How can we stay relevant? How can we keep ourselves working? And how can we make a better product and better uh, uh, environment for our fans? And so that's what was important to us. It's a, it's a boring answer <laughs> for yeah. you guys probably, but that's, no, it's it's, good. you know, you want to be the best that you can at this, at your podcast, right? You want to continue to grow it. This is your niche. You, it's a very, you know, this is a very competitive space. So, you know, great. It's, you know, the celebrity stuff's great and, and it does have its, you know, so, certainly has its perks, but if you, if you have the desire to create music and you see the impact it makes with fans and it's giving you a living and it ultimately gives your family a living, then you want to make sure you, you preserve the, your integrity with that. And you have, you know, you sort of, uh, uh, you kind of have, you see it as sacred for yourself. So, you know, and it's a very competitive business and you're lucky to do it. The chances of selling 10 million records are one in 55 million. So that's, wow. those are slim odds. And, you know, you should, should really respect that and have reverence toward that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as you just out of curiosity, it's like, as you look back on it, were there, do you think there were unfair comparisons to you and NSYNC and Backstreet Boys and all that? Or do you think that the kind of the rising tide helped to, to lift all of you? Or was it in, in hindsight? Was there any, were you, were you treated unfairly at all? Do you think in that, in that conversation? Absolutely not. I, you know, look, I'm honored to be affiliated with groups that sold hundreds of millions of records and toward the world, <laughs> you know, and won yeah. tons of awards, yeah, right. Definitely. You know, but getting back to what we're talking about, you know, uh, you know, five years of our junior here, I was, uh, you know, in my basement dreaming about it. Right. And, and to be compared with these groups that are, you know, legendary, you know, they're going to be known forever in the business, right. Whatever genre you want to consider their music to be they're you know, you, you, you intro that, but Hey, whatever it is, you, you got noticed, right? So, uh, to be noticed, not just noticed compared to groups that are, you know, legendary groups, some of the highest selling groups of all time. I'm all for it. At the time we did consider ourselves a little bit different, uh, in that, you know, we didn't put ourselves together. Our music slanted a little more R and B. So we thought there were some differences, but yeah. certainly didn't shy away from the comparison yeah, at definitely. all. We were honored. We knew those guys. I we're friends with all of them till to this day, even closer than ever. And, you know, they're going through a journey that's not that easy too. I, again, nobody's asking anybody for any sympathy. We are very blessed to get to do uh, this for a living to have this unique experience, but it is not as easy as everybody thinks. So you have yeah. this sort of relatable uh, experience with these guys that gives you an extra amount of respect for them, even, you know, outside of them as people and outside of their talent. So, just and I'll let you jump in here one second, Neil. But be honest, okay? So I, I understand the you know the the NSYNC, the Backstreet Boys, and all that. But once they threw you in the same bucket as, as Color Me Bad, that's where you had to draw the line, right? Color Me Bad is probably the most vocally talented group <laughs> out of all of them. I've <laughs> so interviewed no, someone from Color Me Bad, Steve. <laughs> I 
mean, yeah, no, please. And in fact, Color Me Bad, you know, Brian Abrams is probably considered the best singer out of all these groups. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I toured with Brian and, and Brian used to blow me off the stage with his voice. I, I was like, I can't go. He used to go on before me and I'm like, I can't go on after that guy. So, so uh, please compare us to Color Me Bad. <laughs> <laughs> now, so, so I'm definitely going to jump into that with the, the whole boy band craze. When do you think it finally died? If you look at the years till it finally kind of disappeared you know there's well right so yeah. at first we weren't we weren't even considered a boy band we were considered a vocal group and it wasn't until you know backstreet got really popular and nsync did and we came back we went overseas and boy band was a wildly popular term in the uk and southeast asia we were like boy band what's that they keep calling us a boy band and this was right when we first had had some hits on the radio and that that term over there had a lot of respect to it. That means you're a really popular group. In the U.S., it's corny. The U.S. is a little, little backward compared to the rest of the world. Uh, I, you know, it was interesting to think that the that everybody follows the trends of the U.S., but the U.S. is late on the trends. <laughs> you know, EDM, dance music, that stuff was the rage over there. Boy bands were the rage over there beforehand, and then the U.S. catches up. U.S. is the number one market in the world, so. Everybody wants to obviously break in the U.S., but we were fortunate enough to break a lot of different places. But, um, you know, getting to your question, the boy band era sort of died when I think, you know, uh, first of all, uh, the media loved that era. That's when CDs were really, really selling a lot. Uh, a lot of the Internet started getting developed. So there was an explosion of sales and listenership that hadn't existed before. Obviously, this is before YouTube and Internet radio and all the things, you know, social media, all those things exist. And so in traditional forums, pop music was bigger than ever than that era in, 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 in traditional forms. So they all loved it. But what happened was some of the older guys got tired of the genre. And I really think what tipped it was, and certainly it's not the group O-Town because those guys are amazing and friends of ours. Right. We toured with them. But when the making of the band came out, it became a national TV show. I think that that's when, you know, that's right when it was starting to end that era. And I just think that's sort of like the, the show itself, not the guys, but the premise of the show itself was so different than any of us had experienced that I think it's sort of like might have made people think that that's how everybody got to where they were getting in, in the genre. So I think that, you know, 2002, 2003 was probably the real big end of it. And then certainly it resurfaced. Uh, I'd say 2011 and it, it, it's not going to go away because all of those, you know, teen, teenage girls, mostly teenage girls. And, you know, some of them even younger, we did a lot of stuff with Nickelodeon and Disney, you know, they're, they're all reliving that, that era in their life, which is an innocent era where they could go out and have fun. The world has now changed since then. And, you know, it, there's a certain affinity they, they have for that era. And it's not necessarily because of us and the music, but that sort of time period in their life. And so they, are now at a point where they get to use this experience to get with people that they used to be, be able to become friends with and share the experience with. So, you know, that part of it's never, never going to go away. I don't think. Yeah. Let's do this, man. Let's, uh, let's bring people up to speed uh, in terms of what you're doing now. And uh, just out of respect for your time and don't want to, don't want to take too much of it. I know it's a little bit uh, late already here. So let me, let me just give you the opportunity to bring us up to speed on what, what are you doing now? What does somebody do after having that sort of career and being known as you were known, what, what are you doing now? Well, you know, outside of like panhandling, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I, I just don't know what I'm going to do, Steve. Uh, maybe I'll start a podcast and on clubhouse. Um, yeah. Well, you no, are starting I'm a podcast a and I know that's coming up and I want to hear about that as well, but what else are you doing? That's gotta be a minor piece of it. Yeah, no, it, it is. We, you know, I've been very fortunate. I, you know, like I said, when we 
got off the road. I was always pretty prolific in the studio and, you know, found my way around there pretty well. So I was able to survive and support my family outside of what we made in the group and continue my career as a songwriter and producer for other people and for television shows. And, you know, I've got some great partners uh, that I work with right now. And we, we're landing and, and creating a bunch of, uh, you know, television shows for streaming services and documentaries. And we're big in the tech space. We've got three or four really cool emerging tech things that marry tech and entertainment that they're going to be coming to the forefront very shortly. Of course, you know, try to dabble in a bunch of other stuff. 98 Degrees has is back and has been touring probably stronger than we ever have in the last, you know, seven years, uh, consistently selling out shows all over the place. We've been really lucky to, to have an engaged fan base that's still there for us and supporting us. And we love it. They're more excited than ever. So that, you know, I'm busier now than I actually was uh, back in the early 2000s. So I've been very fortunate and, you know, I mentioned you guys, I'm doing a podcast. I know you guys are experts in that space and have had a ton of success. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to be releasing that with some really great partners soon. Uh, you know, one of the things they're talking about doing is building a studio here and having a proper release. But you, who knows, we we have a bunch of inter interviews in the can. We, we, we just might start releasing those sooner than later. Nice. That's great. See, that's great. Talk about the podcast because that's, again, what this room's all about, uh, Steve, is podcasting in so many ways. Um, what? How are you going to prepare yourself to do a podcast, Jeff? Like, what, Well, what, it's we, easy. Yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's pretty easy. I mean, you just sit there and you have conversations. I know a lot of people have been overthinking, what's, what's the niche? What's the, what's the tagline? You know, look, obviously everybody wants to be the next Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan doesn't have a structured way uh, of doing his podcast. He gets on and talks about whatever with, you know, pretty, pretty established A-list people that are very from different walks of life. And they just talk about life and the stuff that they're promoting. Right. So uh, I'm not doing anything different than that. I should be, you know, a hundredth of, uh, uh, you know, if I get a hundredth of the fan base that, that Joe Rogan has, I'll be really happy, but it's just something fun to do. I'm always one. We've talked about my journey and how it's been different. And, you know, it's not really a cookie cutter way to have success. And again, some of the odd ways that people, you know, go about having success. I find that fascinating. So certainly we're going to talk about that. And we're just going to talk about topics of the day too, you know, and we have. And so you learn about people and their journeys that you might not expect it. The traditional way that you see on an interview on Kimmel or, uh, you know, a morning show like, uh, you know, Ryan and Kelly that, you know, asks, they're, they're fantastic <laughs> at what they do, but they ask traditionally the same questions over and over again. We're just trying to keep it fresh. Yeah, that's awesome. And so folks can keep an eye on out uh, for what, what is the name? Do you, do you have the name? Cause it sounds like you kind of dance a little bit around it, but what, uh, what, what is the name of it going to be? We don't have the name yet. That's We're still trying to figure yeah. that out. All right. Yeah. All right. We'll have to keep an eye out for it, man. All right. Let me do this. Let me just, I, I would be remiss if I didn't give a couple of people the, at least the opportunity to ask a question if they wanted to ask a question. So let me just go ahead here and keep that hand open. All right, Kim. Yeah. Come on up and uh, maybe we'll take one more after Kim uh, as well. Kim, what's your, what's your question for Jeff? Hi, guys. Uh, my question is, what do you think about hosting meet and greets with fans once concerts start back up? Will it still happen six feet apart? Or do you uh, think that it's better maybe another time around just to be safe for you guys? Well, look, I love the meet and greets. I mean, we uh, we I mean, I think that's outside of, you know, the performances and the concerts having a lot of uh, great things about them and benefits for get, for of getting up on stage. The meet and greets to me are the best part of the show because you get to give people a, a little bit of a unique experience and it, it changes it up for us too. The reactions are always different. The questions are always different. So I'm all for it. Look, when everybody feels safe to go back and do it, I want it to go back just the way it was. We used to do really cool meet and greets. We had this, this 
thing where we would even do meet and greets in our dressing room for a limited amount of fans where they can just hang out with us there and, and make it really special and unique. So, uh, you know, the sooner we can get back to those and, and give people a better experience than the run of the mill stand in front of the step and repeat and shake hands and, you know, thank you. Bye. That's always great too. But, you know, we, we tried to make it a, the experience a little bit more memorable. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, Neil, let's, uh, I think we're good here, man. Let's, uh, let's let Jeff get on, get on his yeah, way. Absolutely. Thanks, Kim. Appreciate yeah. the opportunity for you guys to hang out here with us and, uh, and club pod, be sure to put your thumb on that little greenhouse at the top there and join us here in club pod. If you're not already a member or a follower and, uh, Jeff, be sure to follow me and be follow, follow Neil before you go, just so we can keep in touch and hopefully bring you back up on some additional stages as well. Anything to add before we, uh, before we wrap Jeff. No, I just want to thank you guys for having me. Continued success. And uh, yeah, I, I look forward to seeing what's next from you guys. You guys are great. Thank you so much for your time. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. Celebrity slots. Free spin. Free to play mobile social slot games in the likeness of your favorite celebrities. Making money. Spin to win celebrity experiences through sweepstakes. Free to download, free to play. Yeah, baby. What are you waiting for? Win meet and greets, celebrity merchandise, gift cards, and more. Download Celebrity Slots today. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast of Freedom from Addiction, Truth Just Below the Surface, and the Neil Haley Show, and I'm excited to welcome the program, Dr. I'm Reverend Wynn Henderson, MD. Wynn, how are you? And man, uh, this topic is very interesting just because of what we're going to discuss today involving productive meetings, but in regarding meetup. I find it fascinating because meetups become a very, very popular platform hasn't it to meet people especially during the pandemic absolutely meetups all over the world and you can get into a meetup group and about any subject that you would like to get into and mainly for most areas it is uh, virtual but um, depending on the uh, restrictions of the state they are having meetup groups in person actually at this time so if you want to be productive, there's got to be some humor in the meeting. And it also does a lot of other things uh, other than just getting more content uh, into the meeting. Um, you um, talked to me about uh, thinking outside of the box. I know what the box is, but how can you think outside of the box for a particular meeting? Let's take uh, my upcoming meeting on weight loss. And also as part of that, what do you think would be the optimum number of people? Would it be five, 10? I, I don't know if you get over a certain number, uh, we've already discussed some of the things that uh, would hinder the meeting. What's your idea? Well, I, I think, um, you know, it was interesting because, uh, I went and joined a meetup group, you know, to kind of uh, experience that. And I participated virtually. And 
I think that if there was like too large of a group, like if, if I couldn't see everybody on the screen and you had to kind of switch screens, I think that creates a less comfortable environment to share than if you can see everybody on the screen. Um, when you think about your, uh, so the optimal number would kind of, I would say people that if you're doing it virtually that can see each other on the screen without kind of flipping through. Um, I think if you're doing it um, in a live setting, you might want to think about uh, your experiences of how many, you know, maybe 15, 10, 15 people, maybe they might feel more comfortable than if you have 50 people, but it also just depends on what exactly you're trying to accomplish. I know uh, in a meetup group that I went to yesterday, there was uh, six people there. Mm -hmm. And um, the idea was to talk about whatever the topic was for that particular week or whatever like that. I got very bored because people didn't have anything prepared. So they were just kind of talking all around this, that, and the other, not focused on the, the problem or issue that the meetup group uh, was, uh, was talking about. And I liken it to going to a karaoke event where you want to sing, you get to sing one song and then you have to wait two hours before your turn comes up again. And I think that if you don't allow um, enough time for each individual to talk, that you're making a mistake in that group. What do you think? Well, I think you hit a really good point. First of all, if, you know, like I said, when I, I purposefully didn't want to join a really large group, I wanted to be in a setting where I could feel like, as you said, you have a voice. Um, the other part is if there really isn't a, a focus to the meeting or a purpose, then you're kind of like, um, you're just there, but you're not really, there's no direction to the meeting. So I think whoever is organizing the meeting needs to really think about is, what is the purpose for this meeting? What, what are we gonna accomplish in this meetup group? So when you're thinking about weight loss, you know, you're not gonna, okay, this is something I've been always struggling with, you know, you're not gonna lose your 20 pounds in one week. So you might have to think about like, where do I start and what do I need to build up? So each time we come in, uh, what do we want to accomplish? What do we want to share out in? Uh, what is the focus? And having people come in prepared going, what do I, how do I expect them to participate? Another thing uh, about dealing with people is building on people's strengths. So maybe, um, you know, the person who's struggling with the weight loss just has valuable information uh, versus the person who's actually being successful. You know, having both of those to share, like I, I'm trying to, you know, eat the right things, but I'm struggling. And why am I struggling? That might give a really interesting perspective. And then listening to the person going, you know, I did this and it really worked. So, so yeah, go ahead. Let's talk about awareness. 
awareness when the meeting's going on. You talked about an agenda, but being aware, being aware of the reactions of the other people in the room is very important as well, right? How they're reacting, how they're participating, making sure everyone's involved in the meeting, right? That's absolutely a very important part is uh, paying attention to people's expression, body language. Do people look bored or do they look, you know, uninterested and not engaged? So gearing, you know, if you're if people are participating actively, that means you're addressing a need that people had. Um, when you come together and um, you're kind of redefining the problem to go to the next steps, I think when you're conducting a meeting, you're addressing a need, and then you come up. Um, this is a strategy that I use in my college classes, as well as this can go to any meeting. The first step is to define a problem or pose a problem as, as the facilitator. Um, then you get people's input. You have different people share different perspectives. Now, if you're in a large group, like say there's um, 50 people, of course you don't have time to get everybody to share. That's when you give people time to think and have breakout groups, you know, I find like between three to four is the optimal breakout group because then you have time to talk. Uh, if you're waiting for the 50th person to share your idea, by then you're tuned out listening to it. So the first level is to get people to share ideas. If, uh, you know, it depends on your situation. Like um, if what I would do as a facilitator is record people's ideas, write it on a chart paper or the whiteboard feature of your Zoom meeting, or create a Word document and go, oh, okay, these are your different ideas. Second level is analyzing people's ideas. How is what you said similar or different to what this other person said? When you're analyzing each other's ideas, it also focuses for people to listen to each other. So it's not about, I just shared what I have to say, but I'm also listening and thinking about what's being shared. And then the third level is what's the big idea? So how does what we just did contribute to weight loss or setting a goal or an actionable item? And then when you end the meeting, you want to go, okay, where are we now and what are our next steps so that you hold people accountable? Now, Dr. Uh, Lambert, um... It's obvious to me that you are an expert in the field of conducting productive meetings. And you have a book. I wonder if you'd tell our people how they can get that, whether or not you want them to come to a website and uh, anything else in relationship to getting your message out to the people that are listening today. Uh, the books are available on Amazon. So it's uh, if you look up uh, uh, Conducting Productive Meetings, my name is Tiruni Lambert. I also have a website, optimizedlearning.net. And, you know, what I am, what I do study is how people learn and how people learn in group settings. So, so this work, um, this books took, research on creativity, um, on how people learn, how people learn in social settings, and kind of uh, look, 
looked into how we can support learning that way. Yes, I, I wanted to jump real quick in this point that I look at as, you know, scaling my business to more than one and being part of meetings and making sure even an individual meeting one-on-one -on -one with a team member, the importance of having a productive meeting. How much does that, how are those meetings so important in the growth of a company? It is, it is like the most important thing. I mean, your whole success of your company or your business or whatever you're doing is how effective your meetings are. If you have motivated people who are uh, doing things, who are taking action and moving things forward, then your meetings are effective. If people just come in and check off a box and nothing changes, then you're wasted time and it leads to loss of innovation and productivity. So conducting meetings is so important that um, how you use people's time so that they, you value people's time and that when people come in, they go energized going, um, let's kind of motivate and do things that are innovative and that makes a difference. We uh, have gotten close to the end of the program, but I want to give you opportunity if there was something important that you wanted to share that we haven't talked about already with respect to um, how to uh, conduct a productive meetup group. Is there any other ideas, tips, or anything that you're just dying to say? I would say relationships and personal connection. Um, I just got a sweet note from the lady who organized the meetup group and I thought, wow, uh, that was really nice. You know, I, that made me want to come back the next time. So like that communication piece um, that's personalized, I think would go a long way. Absolutely. And it's amazing where meetings are going when, especially with the newest uh, uh, hit clubhouse where people would definitely need to read Dr. Lamberg's book to understand specifically enough how to interact people in an environment where you can't see facial expressions, you only can hear them. And uh, it's really becoming a future thing of the way we are providing value for people now has to be where we're aware of our audience. And Dr. Lamberg's book will definitely put that into place where what we heard so far and how that can relate to so many things went. Great. Well, let's close with the thought that my mission or purpose in life is to spread the message that there is a cure for all addictive behaviors. This is a spiritual cure and the treatment program is profiled in my book, Freedom from Addiction 3. It's available on Amazon and wherever books are sold. If you meet three simple criteria, everyone gets well. I have two free resources where you can start your journey. And the first is to follow the link to my podcast. And that's www.freedomfromaddiction.libson.com. Um, no caps, no spaces, spell Libson, L-I-B as in boy, S-Y-N. And also uh, my uh, website, which is www revwinhendersonmd.com. Uh, um, 
you can also, if you have questions about getting into this new meetup group, give me a call. My telephone number is 828-508-7981. And uh, Neil, thank you. And uh, Taruni, thank you for being on the program today. And um, I uh, really enjoyed it. It's put out a lot of good content. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Great. Value. Okay, guys, that was Freedom from Addiction, Truth, Justice, Wilson, Service, and the Neil Haley Show. Take care.